0: once or twice, and then we'll move on. This morning is November 15th, actually 16th, and uh, the message is going to be called One Generation Away from Apostasy. You know, one thing about the Church of the Living God is its biggest weakness is that what this generation does can be totally lost in one generation if we don't pass it on to the next. I've been amazed as I've gone through Kings and Chronicles as I went through the period of the Judges and read through First and Second Samuel, God would send a mighty Deliverer only one generation away to have all of Israel go to hell in a handbasket. That was not God's plan. And this morning, since we're going to talk about baby dedication, we're going to look at more than just putting oil on a baby's head. More than just giving lip service to God as, oh, this one's yours. And I believe God honors that. But He only honors it to the extent that the parents follow through with their pledge. So there's going to be a spotlight on the two parents here today that are uh, dedicating their baby. I hope that's not too terribly uncomfortable. But like God said to Job, brace yourself like a man that I may question you. <laughs> you know, All of us are in God's spotlight sometimes. In fact, the closer you get to Jesus, the more imperfections you ought to see. As you pass your hand closer and closer to a light source, you'll start to see all the little areas that your skin's cracked, and got abrasions and needs healing and all those things. Jesus is like that. So don't anybody become discouraged by what you hear today. Instead, look at it as an opportunity, like a man who looks at himself in a mirror and sees an opportunity for growth. If you are in the same place in the kingdom tomorrow that you are today, you've already sinned. See, you are supposed to be progressing. You're supposed to be growing. Tomorrow you should be further along than you were today. We are called heavenward. Not to be stagnant. You know, the problem with most Christians is they get saved and they sit on their salvation. They sit right there. They never grow anymore. If they do grow, it's just at such a small rate that the Apostle Paul would have written and said, you should be teachers by now, and yet you need milk. We don't want to be like that. And friends, don't be fooled. Having all the charismatic gifting in the world does not make you mature. The very people that Paul said that to had every gift present in their church. But before we dedicate a baby, let's look at Proverbs 20. This ought to be interesting to see if this Bible will stay on this thing. To get to Proverbs, open to the middle of your Bible, which are to be Psalms, and hang a right. It never ceases to amaze me, and I know I keep mentioning this. And it's just because I'm blown away. I've known this for years. I've been preaching in some form or fashion since about 1994. The people that need to hear messages are almost never the ones that are present in the service. That just blows me away, you know. And uh, I, have to, I have to think that that's got to be grieving to God. Because He goes through a great deal of effort to make His Word available to us. To impress upon His servants the right message and then the very ones that would benefit from it the most are always absent. Don't be absent from the house of God. Don't do it. You miss out. You have no idea what might be said that will change your life. I went to hundreds of services as a young man and went in a sinner and came out a sinner. I got baptized quite a few times. I was a dry sinner, got wet, came out a wet sinner. But one day a guy came preaching in thongs, sandals, I mean, for those listening on tape. And blue jeans and a t-shirt. And he wasn't of the particular denominational background that I was from, so his message was out of the ordinary to me. Had I not heard that, I never would have been stirred to salvation. You never know what you'll miss. What might be the next thing that stirs you to the new level in the kingdom? Y'all in Proverbs 20, verse 25. says, it is a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly. And only later to consider his vows. This is the same spirit that you get saved in. This idea, you are supposed to count the cost before you dedicate anything to God. Before you make a vow to God that you will do thus and so. Before you make a covenant with God. Before you agree to follow God. You're supposed to consider this. Not do it rashly because it will be a trap for you. You know what the trap is? People think that in making the vow only... They've fulfilled the requirement. And they forget to do the vow. It's kind of like the Beatitudes. We forget to be those attitudes. Everybody knows them. Nobody does them. Have you met people that say, Oh yeah, I'm saved. I'm saved because I made a vow on such and such date. I asked the Lord Jesus into my heart. And then you look at their life and you say, Yeah, and there's been zero fruit. That vow has become a trap for them. They never counted the cost. They never considered it. As we dedicate this baby this morning, and it's not the baby that takes a vow. It's the parents. It's the church body here that takes the vow. We're going to have vows this morning. Just, just like in a cov- any other covenant where the two people are party to a vow and then there's a seal or a sign of that covenant. Just like any other covenant you might think of. And the vow is that they will raise this baby in the house of God. Now, in light of this, let's take this service as an opportunity to count the cost before we dedicate Bethany Michelle Hall. Turn to Genesis 2. Everybody ought to turn with me. Never know, I might be lying to you up here. There's a pattern laid down in Scripture. This is a very, very important pattern. It's little recognized in today's American society anyway. And the reason it's little recognized is because all the power of hell has come against this pattern. To so fragment it, to so tear it apart, that you can't see it. You can't see it at work. But God laid down a pattern for a reason. You're going to find out this morning that God's number one desire... It's not that you'd be able to quote the book of Leviticus. It's not that you'd be able to prophesy in other tongues. God's number one desire is not even that you be edifying to everyone around you, which is what's emphasized to the church. God's number one desire is that you produce godly offspring, so that what He teaches this generation is not lost on the next. You can read through the period of the judges, and somebody would do great for 40 years. And then their sons were hellions and destroyed the work of God that they did in those 40 years. We need to raise up a godly generation. To do that, we need to understand the pattern. We're going to start in Genesis 2, verse 18. Now, y'all know the story. God has created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. We've picked up with God hovering over the Waters and a recreation or a reformation of all the things that are earthly are occurring in six days. He causes the sun to appear. He causes the moon to appear. God makes the man on the sixth day. Now we're at a place where God is considering this man and his needs. And we're going to pick up with this pattern that you see in the Bible. It says, the Lord God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. It's not good for man to be alone. All you wives out there, and those of you who are familiar with men, if you're not married, you know why it's not good for a man to be alone. There are things that we just don't get right. <laughs> you know? There are times when it takes a little bit of a softer side, a little different approach to balance out men. If it were up to me, I would hit uh, if If you could consider construction... As an analogy for the way that people handle things in life. I would have one tool. It would be a sledgehammer. But my wife has another tool. Hers would be a dusting mop or something. Where I'm bold and come in and thrash and am like a bull in a china closet. She's sweet. She's delicate. She's orderly. And we fill in each other's gaps. God intended for every husband to have a wife. That's that's what he intended. It's a special and unique gifting, just like a gifting of healing or a gifting of anything else that you see in the body for a man not to be married. Paul had a special gifting. There's a wicked thing that calls itself a church. It's really a synagogue of Satan. And they teach that their priests are not to marry. That is as anti-scriptural as anything you could find. If you trace those roots back you find out that it goes right to the temple of Artemis, the only one of the pagan gods that did not allow their male priest to marry. Incidentally, she was the queen of heaven too. It's not good for man to be alone, so I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed. Is anybody in here reading a King James Bible? Ah, Well, bless you. This This threw me off. The first Bible I ever read as I became a Christian was a King James Bible. It does not use the word had formed. It says the Lord God formed. And so it's possible to get these things out of out of order. What happens is God creates everything, then He looks at the man and says, I need to make a helper suitable for him. Now, he had already formed animals, and he caused them to pass before him. If you're not careful reading that in another... Trans- I'm just for those King James buffs that might be out there. A friend of mine, on the way to his house, there's an enormous sign. It doesn't say it's a church, and it doesn't say... You know, We lift up the name of Jesus. It doesn't say we await a resurrection. It says we preach only the King James Bible. I have no idea why that is. There's not one in Germany. There's not one in Mexico. But I guess that really doesn't matter. Everybody in here is in the NIV, it looks like. It says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Do you get that? How about all my friends out there that says God knows everything? He does. He's got a means to find out everything. But He brought these before the man to see what the man would name them. If you read the Word with an open mind, you'll find out God does a lot of things to find out what the result will be. In other words, He didn't know beforehand. Uh, If that blows you away, I'm sorry. You just need to get in the Word more and it won't blow you away. But there was a purpose for this. He was watching the man's heart. He wanted to see how Adam would react to these. And He brought the animals along. And you know what? You can infer from the passage, he brought them along in pairs because the goal here was for God to show Adam that Adam had a need for a helper. See, God already knew it. There's a lot of things God already knows about you, but he needs to get it through to you. So God causes these. And as the little squirrels go by, Adam goes, wow, that one's got a helper. And look how that works. And he named him. And then as the other animals passed by, he sees that they were put together in pairs. This is one way that Psalm 19 says the creation pours forth speech day and night that is understood by all men about God. You know, some things amaze me. We have really worked hard at defiling the message that the creation speaks to people. You know, you can learn a lot just by looking at how the animals act. You can see frustration and sin. You can see the desire to raise godly offspring. You get between a mother bear and her cubs. Find out what happens to you. Something's wrong with a mother when she doesn't care about her kids. You know, I don't care how liberating it might make the mother feel. You don't care about your kids. You're unnatural. Something's wrong. Nobody ever admits to not caring about them. But, you know, when they're first born and somebody else is taking care of them so that you can drive that nicer vehicle. I wonder if that's done anywhere else in nature. All right. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. Are you getting the impression that this didn't happen in 30 minutes? I mean, come on. How long does it take to go through the kingdom, phylum, genus, species, all of those things that we learned in school? He named them all. I mean, he named them all. Didn't say some, said all. This was a long process to get Adam to come to a conclusion. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now, we know God knew Adam was not going to find a helper among the animals. It was to teach Adam something. Adam said, man, they all got another half. But I don't. It created in Adam a desire for another half. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. For this reason, for what reason? For the reason of a husband and wife coming together as one flesh, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. It is unhealthy, it is unnatural, and it is wrong for husbands and wives not to separate from the rest of their family. It just is. Now, we all, I've lived in <laughs> all of my relatives' house at some point. I've had most of my relatives live with me. That is the exception, it is never the rule. And there's a reason for it. You are supposed to be an independent unit before the Lord God. Free from every influence except God's so that you alone bear the responsibility to raise your children. Now, I know we've all heard it takes a village to raise children. And you'll find plenty of godly examples of grandmothers, grandfathers helping to raise children in the Bible. Here's what's important, though. It's not their responsibility. It's yours. It's not theirs. It's not anybody else's responsibility to provide for Judah. It's not anybody else's responsibility to provide for Gabriel. Provide food, clothing, instruction, training and in righteousness, all falls on this person right here. There's a reason for that. I'm the one that's held accountable for it. Now, a wise man has many advisors. I will take all the help I can get, but it is my responsibility. So when God set this up, he said, when a husband and wife come together, they will separate from the household. You don't know how many problems have been caused throughout history by husbands and wives that could not separate their household. I've noticed amongst my peers that God has a habit of when spirit-filled Christians are newly wed, they get moved off somewhere. They get isolated somewhere so that they can form as a family Prior to having the influences of all the others in their lives. Because you know what? As much as I already know this, one day my son will fall in love. He'll want to get married. And you know what I'll have a hard time doing? Let him go. I'll have a hard time not wanting to direct my son. And when he has kids, I'm speaking to all you grandparents out there, it would be very hard for me not to want to tell him how he should handle his kids. And you know what? I might even see a mistake before he makes it. How will he learn to parent his children if he's not allowed to make mistakes? Husbands and wives should be an independent unit before God. Look at Genesis 3. We're going to pick up in verse 8, but I want to tell you what happens. You all know this story. The man was given instructions. Notice something about God. God always gives the head of the household the instructions first. And when there's a problem, regardless of whether it's with a man's kids, a man's livestock, anything under the man, God comes back to the man first. We're going to see something here, and that is that Eve was deceived. The man willingly joined her in deception. That's a shadowing type about Jesus that we don't have time to teach about. But his church was deceived. His bride was deceived. So he joined her in the deception in order to bring her out of it. That's why He came to the earth. That's why He was crucified. That's why we'll be glorified with Him. But that's not where we're going. After these two people are in a fallen state, they're naked and they've hidden from God. Starting in verse 8 of chapter 3. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sometimes... The reason people don't come to the house of God is because they're lazy. Sometimes the reason they don't come is because there's conviction and the house of God brings more conviction. And when you're not ready to get right, you don't want to go where you're going to be convicted. If there's a day where my preaching stops being convicting, then I need to I need to hang it up. It's convicting to me giving it and I hope to God it's convicting to you hearing it. I looked out my window this morning, saw somebody who was supposed to be here, who at 11 o'clock last night I was on the phone with said they would be here. So I'm getting their car and drive the wrong direction. I know why. I mean, I know why. I don't need to be told. We have a natural inclination to want to hide our sin from God and from everybody else. Ought not be so. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God while he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I have commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. The reason I went on and on about hiding from God is because of this man's response. David, Jennifer, the first thing you need to know about raising this child is that it's your responsibility. You're an independent unit before God. The second thing is the buck stops with you, David. Does not matter whether your wife got it right or wrong. It stops with you. Look at Adam's first response because he's now a sinner. He says, it's the woman's fault. We had an old coach one time that both David and I had when we were in high school. He said, the national pastime is not baseball. It's transferal of the blame. And I tell you what, he's right. It's the oldest sin. From the very beginning, man does not want to accept responsibility for what he's done wrong. He wants it to roll right on down to the people beneath him. When the truth is, the man of God stands up, takes responsibility for his family He takes responsibility for the actions of all who he's been entrusted with. If Judah sins, it's a reflection on me. If Jennifer sins, it's a reflection on me. If they are ungodly, it's because I have not been the priest that I should be. It all starts and stops with the man. God gave him the instruction first and God held him accountable first. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, is he just blaming the woman? No, he's describing fault to God. Hey, this chick you gave me, you know. You remember that God passed all the animals in front of Adam so that Adam would have a desire for a wife? It was Adam's desire. God created in him the desire. But as soon as there's a problem, (laughs) the woman you gave me, yeah, it's her fault. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. You know, does she take responsibility for it either? No, we, we don't have a godly one in the bunch here yet. You know, it's not my fault. It's theirs. Well, you get to them. It's not it's not my fault. It's it's theirs. The best way I've ever seen this expressed is my parents were in private schools. They were administration and teachers. I don't think I ever heard a story where a parent came to talk to the teacher and acknowledged that their child was bad. What did parents say about their kids? Little Johnny, little Susie's just in with the wrong crowd. What if little Johnny and little Susie are the wrong crowd? At some point, we, the people of God, must stand up and say, my family will be righteous, and if they're not, I bear the responsibility for that. As a pastor, I bear the responsibility for your actions. Now, each man dies for his own sin. Ezekiel says that. But it is a reflection of me. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, serpent didn't have anybody left to blame it on. Truthfully, was it the serpent's fault? Well, he yielded to the devil, but he was not the original cause. The devil was the original cause. God does not address the devil until Jesus shows up and says, the prince of this world now stands condemned. He got away with this through the entire Old Testament. The Lord kept feeding him enough rope for him to hang himself so that he attacked God and a man's body on the cross. But that's an entirely different message. Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Here's the key verse. And I will put enmity. That is warfare. And I can't ever say the word right. It's enmity. But I, I add an extra I. You know, preachers sometimes take alternate pronunciations for whatever reason, that's mine. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. You notice that word is hers. The offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. This is a prophecy about Jesus. Jesus was the offspring of Mary. Hers. Not necessarily the offspring of Joseph. He was just a surrogate daddy. I know what it's like to have a surrogate daddy. He did a great job with me. First picture of Jesus I ever saw. And Joseph is godly for accepting this role. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This prophecy occurs. Man and woman have fallen. But the redemption, the restoration, the salvation will come through the woman. One of the woman's offspring will crush the head of the enemy. That's the promise. Sin occurs and then the promise is the offspring of the woman. So the pattern that you see is a husband and wife should be an independent unit. Secondly, their purpose is to produce offspring that will crush the head of the enemy. They would be restored as... Oh, there's one more thing I need you to know about that. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Have you ever watched in the animal kingdom when they give birth to babies? You know, it's amazing. A wildebeest or something can have this enormous baby and then run off and go do their thing, you know? We're in the hospital for a while. Not me, as in we, but we human beings are in the hospital for a while. We struggle with childbirth more than any in the creation. You know why? Why? Because there are forces that oppose us, and it was supposed to be hard for you to produce children. Because it would be through this production of children that mankind would be restored. Now, that was the woman's part. Watch what happens with the guy. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Or one translation says, cursed is the ground for your sake. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The woman gets assigned the role of producing children. Now, we know it's not her role alone. It takes a husband to produce children. What was the man's role assigned in Genesis 3? It was that he would work the ground. The sweat of his brow would produce food. The the man in the household is supposed to be the one that carries the load for producing for the family. The wife is supposed to be the one that carries the load for the production of children. Does that mean husbands can't help with children? Of course not. A godly husband is responsible for those children. Does it mean that a wife cannot help her husband with the production for the family for food and and all provision? No, but it's his responsibility. The pattern that you see laid down in Genesis is one unit independent from everybody else. The husband's responsibility to provide for the wife and children. The wife's responsibility to bring forth children that are pleasing to God. Do they all share those responsibilities? Sure. But the pattern is that the primary responsibility falls to the people I told you it does. Now, I know that's unpopular. I know people don't like it. I really don't care. I like the Word of God. I would rather God be true and every man a liar than try to twist God's Word to make what people say right. Say, well, my wife has to work. That's okay. The Bible is full of women who works, A Proverbs 31 woman worked from morning till evening, but it was still her husband's responsibility to do this. It was never God's intention for the husband to sit back and wait for the wife to work and him do nothing. If the man is not the provider in his home, if he's not an independent unit before God, he's out of order with God. You should protect that. You say, but it's hard. I need it. That's okay. It's supposed to be hard. It teaches you to trust God. My father did something for me. And it seems to not be as fresh in their memory as, as it is mine. And that's okay. Before God, I'm not lying. It was a benefit and a blessing. He said, son, it's time for you to move out. I said, okay. I went out. I found an apartment. I'd been out of high school about a week. I said, Dad, I found an apartment. He said, good, give me your keys. I said, well, can I have the furniture and stuff? He said, no, it's time for you to go make your own life. That seems harsh, doesn't it? It's the best thing that ever happened to me. It cut the umbilical cord. So from that moment forth, I understood. This is my responsibility now. Now, is there anything wrong with him waiting in the wings in the distance so that if I'm failing, he can help me? No, there's nothing wrong with that. But it can become an unhealthy attachment. Can it? Well, let's be men and women of God. Let's take our responsibilities seriously. We haven't even got to the parenting part. This is still the foundation. Since the pattern is set, you see the battle on. Men and women are supposed to be independent. The man's job to provide. The woman's job to bring forth the godly offspring. Was this pattern attacked? Yes. In the first generation, what happens? The man and woman give birth to a child. And man, you know, they are excited. They're waiting. They're watching. What will our kids be like? Will this be the one that crushes the head of the enemy? Will this be the one that restores us? Will that happen? And what happens? One kills the other one. In the very first generation, we see the enemy come against what God has said. The first way that he did it was to kill one that could have been a Messiah. And he used his brother to do it. Did Adam and Eve fail? No, they had more kids. The godly lineage went on right through Seth. Well, just because your kids might not be killing each other doesn't mean that the devil's not attacking. He attacks in any one of those ways to tear apart the pattern so you can't see what God is trying to do in a life. You know, when you talk to, and I just happen to have some recent experience with this, when you talk to somebody who struggles with homosexuality, You know, that was somebody's offspring that was supposed to be godly. You know, in every case you find out they had a problem, a huge problem with one parent or the other. There's never, not any, in all of my years of ministry, have I never met somebody who was a homosexual that did not have enormous issues with their parents. See, the pattern got screwed up from the very beginning so that these people couldn't learn about God from looking at their parents. Now, I'm not saying it's entirely the parents' fault. That kid played a role in that. They chose to sin. But the devil attacks to tear apart the pattern so that you can't do what you're called to do, which is produce godly offspring. The battle raged from Adam and Eve all the way through the cross. All the way through. So that the devil knocked down every man that stood before him. Every single one. Until this first century Galilean Jew squared off with him in the desert. And when he did, and he defeated the enemy there, it says he left him for a more opportune time. You know what? He went back to the well. He said, well, when I hadn't been able to get them before, what do I do? He said, wait a minute. I've always been able to get them. But what did I do in that first dinner? Oh, I had one kill the other one. Let's have some of these wicked guys kill this one guy I can't defeat. And that's how we get to the cross. We need to be aware of the devil's schemes. But now that we see what the pattern's like, let's look at 1 Timothy 2.8 to see how Paul applied it. Are you all still with me? Have you ever heard somebody try to insinuate that Paul was a sexist? I have. This is one of those verses that commentaries have explained away that people would blot out of their Bible if they could, and everybody is certain that it doesn't mean exactly what it says because they don't like it. You don't have to be a Greek scholar. People have already done that for you. This says what it says. Starting in... 1 Timothy 2, verse 8 says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Why do you lift up your hands in prayer, by the way? You're supposed to be showing God these things that used to do wicked things. These works of my hands that used to be my works, I now dedicate to you. I'm your workmanship. I'm here to do the deeds you've prepared in advance for me to do. Look, my hands are clean, Lord. They're here for you. That's why we raise our hands. It's it's not so that people see we're (laughs) spirit-filled. It's not so we can distinguish ourselves from the church down the road with the steeple. It's not just something that's learned behavior that we do. You're supposed to be presenting your hands to God. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety. Not with braided hair, or gold, or pearls, or expensive clothes. But with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, if you're trying to cover up rings and stuff or you got your hair braided in here, I'm not throwing stones at people about this. The emphasis is on with deeds that are appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Your beauty is not supposed to come from the braiding of your hair. It is not supposed to come from the brooch that you wear. Incidentally, my brothers and sisters who've taken this Scripture and made the New Testament a binding law that you wear around you like shackles, say, oh, well, we can't braid our hair, can't cut our hair, can't do these things. They always find some area to go in excess. I was in a church that, you know, nobody in there is wearing any makeup, but this chick's got a $20,000 pendant on, you know. Now, is that really what Paul was trying to teach here? A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. So, oh my God. You know, that, that, that must have just been a sign of the times. That's just Paul's old archaic way of dealing with an archaic people. No, it's not. It is not. And I myself have looked into it and I, I've taught on the dividing wall that was in some of the churches and the disruption that was occurring. Really, the heart of this is right here. We are supposed to, as men, take responsibility as the head of the household, the head of the churches. It does not mean that women cannot contribute. If they don't contribute, we're lost, we're sunk. But it is a man's responsibility. What happens is, when a man shirks his godly responsibility to be the head of whatever God's called him to be the head to, it's natural for a woman to want to step up because she sees there's a need here, needs to be done. Paul says, men, it is not okay You cannot pass off your responsibilities on a woman just because you think she's better able to handle it. A man's not the head because of his capabilities. He's the head because God called him to be the head. Read Corinthians 11. It, it, It doesn't get any clearer. And yet, I can't tell you how many times the tail wags the dog. You know, husbands do what their wives tell them to do. And if they don't, there's hell to pay. Shame on you. Husband and wife, shame on you should never occur. That will tear apart your life, your marriage, and corrupt your children. The single biggest hindrance I've ever seen in the kingdom amongst spirit-filled, godly people is when their marriage is not founded on a godly flow of authority. We've taught on that here. Authority flows from the greater vessel to the lesser as bowls of larger size flow into smaller size all the way down. When authority is misplaced, when it's out of order, it's confusion and God cannot move. You know how many women I've dealt with that had a different conception of what their husband's calling was than the husband had? And so instead of being content with godliness and that being great gain, always felt like they needed to do something more because their wife was telling them they needed to. Because inwardly, the wife wanted some kind of prestige. That is so wrong. It's wrong for the husband to yield this, to be a coward and have his wife stand for him as the head. And it's wrong for the woman to want to usurp it. And it's plain as day right here. Now listen to the justification why. This is Paul's teaching. He takes it right back to the pattern. Right back to the very beginning. Right back to the first man and woman. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. The first work was Adam. He's the head. And then Eve was formed. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. First time I read that, I had a heart attack. I had to go back and read because I know they were both deceived and became sinner. She went first. He willingly joined her in it with the hope of pulling her out of it. But that is another teaching. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in the faith, love, and holiness with propriety. I have more than 15 commentaries in that room right there and in here. You can look it up. You know what they'll tell you? That godly women ought to have a lower mortality rate in delivering children. That's not what this is teaching. That's absurd. That's somebody looking with the eyes of the world at the Holy Scripture of God. You know what this Scripture is teaching? That the hope for women, the hope for mankind indeed, is that as you bear godly children, people will be restored. Think about this as Eve first, then we'll apply it. Eve's hope for restoration was that she would bear a godly child, right? That's the promise of Genesis 3.15. Women are still being saved in that same hope. You said, but wait a minute, the godly child has come, right? So Jesus has already come. So how are women still saved in that hope? Because the body of Christ is not yet complete. We have a head. He's the king of the Jews, but his body is being filled in. And if every Christian on earth stopped having children today, the body of Christ would never be complete. Because Romans 11 teaches there is a full number of Gentiles that must come in. A number Deuteronomy teaches you that the number is according to the sons of Israel. There's a mathematical equation. A number of people who will form the body of Christ. If we don't perform our duty, which is to have children as God wants us to, when He wants us to, how He wants us to, and raise them to be a member of the body of Christ, then the body of Christ doesn't get full. So women are still saved in the same hope that Eve was. That's what that Scripture means. You read your footnotes. You look it up in your lexicons. Do everything that you want to do. You're going to find the same thing. Except maybe instead of saved, you can substitute the word restored. Or instead of she, Eve. Bottom line is, whether we're talking about Eve or women, it's the same. So this Scripture is not teaching you that you have to have a child and that's salvation. The Scripture is not teaching you that if you're godly, you'll never have a miscarriage. That's not what it's teaching at all. It's that you have the same hope that Eve did. Through bearing godly offspring, you will see restoration. That's what it teaches. Have you all ever heard that one misapplied or am I the only one? I've never heard it right. Never. The family unit has been attacked in order to prevent the man and the woman's restoration. If Eve was saved in that hope and we're saved in the same hope, the devil said, all right, well, the first thing I need to do is I need to break down this pattern. Husbands and wives need to hate each other. Children need to dishonor their parents. So much so that by the time Israel's formed as a nation, you have to have an actual law from God telling children to honor their parents. Threatening to stone them if they don't. You can tell how wicked a people are by the laws they have. If you have to have a law that says... You know, don't kill your neighbor. It's because somebody's thinking about killing their neighbor and you're trying to warn them. The devil had so attacked mankind that by the time the nation of Israel came along, you had to have basic laws about these things. It's already written on your heart. You don't need a law to tell you, but without a law and a penalty. People without the spirit have no hope. You know, laws were meant to restrain people. The Mosaic law was meant to restrain Israel so that a Messiah could be produced. Now we, the mature, have cast off that law and that restraint. I don't have not one law. If the Ten Commandments are in my house somewhere, they're in my house to glorify God and how beautiful He is. Not to give me a law to live by. The Holy Spirit's in me. He gives me that law. He tells me, do this, don't do that. My law is to let every action be motivated by Him. But we've seen the pattern. We've seen it attacked. Now look at Malachi, last book in the Old Testament. You remember the prophecy today restoration. about restoration, about God's mercy triumphing over man's judgment. My father wanted to be a deacon in a church. We're going to get to this later just because it's part of the scripture. But he wanted to be a deacon in the church. The church said, no, no, you can't be a deacon. The word says must be the husband of but one wife. They quote some nasty things out of Malachi about divorce. Their exegesis is as sloppy as the rest of their walk with God. The husband of but one wife means at a time. So, say, oh my God, what do you mean? Israel was permitted to have more than one wife. All of the Middle Eastern peoples had more than one wife. Now that's not the pattern. It's not what God gave Adam. But they were permitted. Happened. And what that scripture is teaching in Timothy is that you're Examples for the church should only have one wife. Not that there could have never, like God's going to throw you away because a mistake happened. That's insane. We'll get to that more in a minute. But listen to this. Starting in Malachi 2, verse 15. God is really getting on to these Jews for throwing away their marriage covenants. And that's what some people would choose to emphasize here. But I think what the heart of this is, especially in today's teaching, is right here. Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are His. And why one? Why did God make a husband and wife one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. The purpose of marriage is not just for you to be fulfilled. It's not for you to Have a husband like everybody else or have a wife like everybody else so you have somebody next to you at parties. You know? It's not so you have a trophy on your side when you walk in a room. It was to produce godly offspring. That was God's desire. That's why the enemy has come against us with divorce. It's why he's come against us to tear apart the family. It's why he's come against us in all those realms. It's for one reason. I heard that through a woman is going to come somebody who crushes my head. Let's stop it. The devil decided he didn't want his head crushed. So he has attacked the entity that is supposed to produce godly offspring. David, Jennifer, your purpose, number one, for being on this planet is to produce godly offspring. Everything else flows from that. Look at Genesis 18. Say, well, if that is the number one purpose for men and women of God... Shouldn't we see that with the father of all the faithful? Is Abraham not a shadow or a type or an example to be held up as what faith is? Why do you think God chose Abraham? You think because he spoke well? Maybe he was courageous. Maybe, maybe God chose him because he was good looking and he thought people would follow him. Maybe God chose him because like Israel, he was small and weak.